is another man's freedom fighter. On this end he's a freedom fighter, on that end he's a terrorist. If you look at the definition used by the American government, that's as far as you want. That is the correct understanding. That's how the Sharia is applied. And why God created Satan? Why did God create Satan? He created him as he created all creatures to worship himself. But he gave them human beings and the jinn. He gave them the ability to choose to worship or not. All of the other creatures, the angels, the animals, the solids, the plants, etc., worship God not by choice, but by the fact that they're created in a state of worship. He chose to create beings, the jinn and human beings, who could choose to worship him or not. A spiritual choice. The question that you raise as to why did he create a place for Satan, I think what you really want to say is, why did he create an evil one? Is it not? Why did God create that which would become evil. Knowing that it would become evil, meaning that he created a being, you could say, for evil. This is the essence of your question, I believe, really, isn't it? Huh? I'm saying this is the essence of your question, right? I just want to get to the essence of it because you asked, you know, a bit further down the line, so I'm just going ahead with you. Why did God create evil? or create that which will produce evil. The reason for it is for good. The evil which exists, which God has permitted to take place, is for good. That whatever God has created is not 100% evil. And when he created those beings, or he permitted an evil act to take place, it is not for the sake of the evil itself, but for the good that would result from that evil. For example, if I were to ask you, I have this, uh, what was that with me? I have a pen knife. A knife. And I said to you, do you mind if I cut your chest, break your ribs, and take out your heart? You would say, no. That is evil. Why should I allow you to do that to me? However, when you have a problem with your heart, 
and you need some blood vessels changed or some blood, uh, what do you call them, uh, the, the ventricles uh, replaced or the this and the that done to your heart, then you say, Doctor, please cut me open, break my ribs, take out my heart. Why? Because you like to have your chest cut open, ribs broken, and heart taken out? No. You will permit, encourage, beg that this evil take place to you for the sake of what? The evil? Because you love pain? No. But for the good. The preservation of your heart. When you take medicine, the doctor gives you some medicine, you're sick. They give you some, some medicines. You look at them, they look nasty. You pour them in the spoon, they smell nasty. You put them on your tongue, they taste nasty. Horrible, evil. But you drink it anyway. Why? Because you like the nasty taste? No. But because you believe it's going to produce good. So this is the nature of good and evil. We live with it all the time. We permit, we tolerate certain evil things, not for the evil in themselves, but for the good that comes from them. Sometimes this good can be seen in our lives. It's obvious. An evil thing happens to you, we say, oh, that's terrible. I lost my job. I was fired. What an evil thing. But, two days later, somebody calls you in for another job, which gives you double the salary. You say, Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, I was fired. But the day when you were fired, you said, oh, what an evil thing. Stop for a while. What an evil thing. It's terrible. It's bad. Two days later, Alhamdulillah, wonderful. I'm glad I was fired because now I didn't have to try to get a transfer. It was made easy for me. I could transfer to another job with double the salary. So sometimes the good that we that we are able we can see the good quite easily. And there are other times in our lives when we can't see the good. We can't see to find and to fathom where is the good. Tsunami came, took so many lives. I say, well, where is the good in that? Well, because you can't see the good, does that mean there is no good? Because you can't see the good, does that mean there is no good? The child, when you take your little kid for the first time to the dentist, right? It's got a uh, toothache. It's got a little cavity. You're going to take him to the dentist for the first time, what do you do? You tell him, oh, the dentist is a nice man. He's a very nice man. He wears a long white coat. He's going to give you a candy. He's a nice man. So the kid goes there very happily. Yeah, he's nice to meet the dentist. Oh, nice to meet the dentist. The dentist gives him a candy. Puts him in the chair. Then he starts drilling. This man is crying. Ah! He leaves the dentist. As far as he's concerned, you lied to him. The dentist is not a good man. He's a bad man. 
Next time you want to take him to the dentist, what's going to happen? You think he'll fall for that trick again? That he's a nice man? No. You have to force him to the dentist now. And he, as far as he's concerned, that dentist is an evil man. He's going to come and stick a needle in my mouth again and drill. Pain. Now when you take him to the dentist, you know that by him suffering this pain, it's to prevent a greater suffering. When his teeth, tooth goes bad and the cavity gets, you know, really bad, he's really in pain. So this pain of the dentist is to prevent a greater pain. You can see it. But can the kid? No matter what you tell him, no, this is for a greater good. <laughs> greater good? Can he understand greater good? No. All he can understand is the pain that comes from the dentist. So the fact that he can't understand the good, does that mean there is no good? The fact that he can't see any good coming from what the dentist is doing to him, does that mean that there is no good? No. So this is the point. Whatever God has created is ultimately for good. Evil which has taken place in the world, which he has committed, or evil beings that he has created, they are not for the evil which is within themselves, but for the good which would be produced as a result of some of the things which they would do. Is that clear? Not very clear. Sorry. Come together with their various national entities, they were not united. Because nationalism fundamentally is in opposition to Islamic teachings. The only nationalism which Islam recognizes and it recognizes is the nation of Islam itself, the Ummah. This is the only nationalism which Islam the Sharia recognizes. All of these other petty nationalisms, you know, these borders, lines which have been drawn by colonial masters between Muslim countries where, you know, we have Egypt and Libya and Tunisia. All of these countries, where did this, where did this come from? This is not from Islam. So, until Muslims are able to come back to Islam, they will not be able to unite because that is the only factor which they really have in common. That is what united them in the past, and that is the only thing that can unite them in the future. They will not be able to unite on the basis of nationalism because nationalism divides. They will not be able to unite over the cause of Palestine, Masjid al-Aqsa. Imagine, Masjid al-Aqsa, the third most holy place in Islam. Muslims are unable to come together and liberate that holy mosque. If they are unable to do that, this is telling you that to talk about them uniting on anything else is folly. 
So the basis of unification of Muslims has to be Islam. That can only take place when Muslims come back to Islam. The other question is uh, just an extension of that. Why are Muslims weak? Why is why are Muslims weak, weaker than Christians? Same difference. Muslim lands in terms of Wealth, mineral wealth, oil wealth, etc. Some of the strongest and richest in the world. But due to the petty nationalism which divides them and their distance away from Islam, then the principle of divide and conquer continues to give the colonial powers of the past this advantage, this ability to exploit. Muslim countries and their wealth and their economics and leave them in a state of weakness. Hello? Uh, yes, I just, I just want to, uh, I just want to know if I want to go to some person, I want to go to my child. So, where in this world, uh, even though whether it is in Kashmir or Palestine or uh, uh, Afghanistan, so where he, where actually the child is going on? Right here, as I said, jihad begins with you. Jihad begins with you as an individual. If you haven't made jihad concerning yourself and Islam, then to talk about jihad in any other part of the world is folly. You understand what I'm saying? If you as an individual right here, right? If we look at your life, you look at your life. Are you living a life which is in compliance with the Sharia? Are you doing what Allah has commanded you to do from the time you get up in the morning to the time you go to sleep at night? Or are you disobeying Allah from the time you get up in the morning to the time you go to sleep at night? What is it? And I say you, I don't mean you as an individual, I mean we all. We have to ask ourselves. What are we doing? Uh, can we say that the lives that we are living are truly Islamic lives? Have we struggled with ourselves and established Islam within ourselves and our families? Or are we still living artificial lives? Lives which are not in compliance, not in agreement with Sharia, with Islam. You see, the point is, Allah will ask you on the day of judgment, not whether you fought jihad in Kashmir or Palestine, but He'll ask you right here about how you lived your life. All of the acts that you do in a day, which are in disobedience to Allah, these are what you will be asked about. So, my advice to you 
and to all of us, to myself, is to try to apply Islam in our own lives. If we can establish it in our own lives, then we can change our situations. But only if we establish it within ourselves first. And when we do it, we will know. It will be clear where we have to go, or when we have to go, or what we have to do. So, deal with the here and the now, and tomorrow will become clear to you. Can I ask a question please? This uh, will be the last question today because we are running out of time. We can proceed. Um, all of us know that Islam is against terrorism, but don't you think that at least some Islamic clerics or some Islamic rulers who want to take their power are they are not mis misusing Islam, the name of jihad? and misleading the people, that creates a bad image among the non-Muslims about Islam. Don't you think so? The problem of the false image of Islam begins with individuals and goes all the way up to their governments and their rulers. You don't want to point the finger at the ruler alone when, if you look into your own life, yourself, you are a bad example of Islam. Can you say right here, you are a good example of Islam? Can you say that? No. So then, why point your finger there? Yes, yes, he's not a good example. Yes, this ruler, or that ruler, or that king, or that, you know, prime minister, or that, he's not a good example. But the point is, is Allah going to ask you, why was so-and-so a bad example of Islam? Or is going to ask you, why were you a bad example of Islam? You see, it's always easier to point the finger at others. It's easier, because then you don't have to do anything. Right? It's his fault. It's their fault. It's this ruler's fault. It's very easy to do that. But what is difficult, what is difficult is to change ourselves, is to deal with what we can actually change. You know, this is wisdom. Wisdom is to know the things which you can't change. No, know which things you can't change. And know the things which you can change. Then put your efforts into the things that you can change. That is wisdom. Assalamualaikum. Good evening, brothers and sisters. First of all, I thank Almighty for his blessing so that we could have this program today. Thank you very much, Dr. Bilal Zanet, for your thought-provoking speech. I thank the brothers and sisters for coming here and spending time with us. We thank the capital management for the support and encouragement. 
Special thanks to Mr. Abubakar, the club manager, and this whole Dana Club team for this efficient support and service. Thank you very much, my dear volunteers, who are the backbone of today's program. This is your support and Almighty's blessing we could have this program here today. Thank you one and all. Thank you. We have some dates and books uh, on the website for sale, so you can just have a look if you're so interested.